Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the aftermath of the police shutting down the vigil for Sarah Everard in London. And you ask us... What should Labour's attitude towards the police be? So we're recording on a day when MPs are about to debate the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, which is new legislation that would make it easier to crack down on public protests. Now, in a sort of strange coincidence of the parliamentary calendar, this falls in the very, very angry and bitter aftermath of a vigil for Sarah Everard being held in uh, Clapham Common over the weekend was shut down by police officers from the Met. And so apologies for the uh, the sound of this podcast as well, because Stephen and Alva are in Parliament and there are protesters outside Parliament as we record as well. So tensions are very high and the debate seems to go beyond whether or not the um, commissioner of the Met, Cressida Dick, should resign and on to how far police should have rights to break up public protests, particularly in light of a year that has seen a lot of public protests, you know, from the Black Lives Matter. I say a year because I now think of years in in pandemic terms. There were the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer. And of course, you've had all sorts of different demonstrations from, you know, people demonstrating against taking the vaccine and anti-lockdown demos as well. So there's been a, a whole spectrum of public gatherings when we're not actually supposed to be gathering at all. And the police seem, seem to have taken different decisions in different parts of the country on how to enforce the law and whether to, to enforce the law. And they got it so wrong over the weekend in London. So Stephen, what are people saying in Parliament at the moment? I'm going to start with the important group of people, who, of course, are conservative backbenchers with civil liberties objections, because they are the people who, if this bill is to pass in a non-problematic form, they are, of course, the people whose objections it runs through. And their concerns are kind of twofold. The first is that, as you kind of alluded to, the the thing that the coronavirus laws do is they shunt a lot of the work of interpretation onto the courts as a secondary measure, which is one of the things we saw on Friday, that the women behind Reclaim These Streets had to go to court in order to basically get a ruling saying, yes, the, there is an implicit right to, to protest in these laws, and therefore the police cannot just go, yeah, this is illegal. So to the courts, but crucially, of course, because day to day, not every campaign is going to be able to take their protest to court to 
ascertain whether or not they do have a de facto right to do it. It shifts the ability to go, yeah, this is, yeah, is this legal YN very firmly into the operational lap of, of the police. And there are a couple of, there are sort of a couple of objections that backbench MPs have to that. The first is the kind of straightforward, it's illiberal, we should have a generalised right to protest. Yeah, the kind of stuff that your Charles Walkers and your Steve Bakers have been raising about the coronavirus laws to begin with. And they are very much looking to go, okay, let's see what we can do in committee stage. Let's see what amendments the Lords brings through. Bring through. They will vote for it at second reading, which is basically broadly the stage in a legislative process where people kind of go like, the, do you, how do you feel about the, the idea of this bill? But they have very specific problems about its implementation. Then you have another group of people whose concern is, look, broadly, we have a situation where we have a Conservative government and Labour mayors. And there's already a lot of confusion about which one of those two groups of people is in charge of police enforcement. That's where you add the kind of complicating slash overlapping layer of police and crime commissioners. The last thing we need is another law with such broad, yeah, well, you interpret and figure out. We need something much more precise. And the kind of sort of objection to the uh, the opposition parties have, which obviously does matter a great deal in terms of, you know, the, the principle of the thing, but is entirely relevant to whether or not it passes, is that specifically the, the definitions this includes of circumstances where you might be in committing an offence, I mean, are so broad. I mean, for example, the protesters outside our, our window who... Um, they really are making a very impressive amount of noise for not very many people at all. They are arguably annoying me enough to be illegal, right? And that's obviously a ridiculously high high barrier to have. I mean, I'm no, notoriously thin-skinned and aggressive. And that's kind of the, the essential problem, isn't like This is such a, a, a low bar that you'd have to get over, and it effectively criminalises all forms of protest unless your local police force is feeling particularly, you know, liberal, which doesn't seem all that likely. And Alva, how does this this row over the bill relate to what happened over the weekend? And how is what happened over the weekend shaping politicians' responses to it? Yeah, so as you say, it's this sort of strange coincidence that this was in the parliamentary timetable anyway, that we would be discussing this. But people have taken a much keener interest in it and are thinking differently about the circumstances around protests that have been in place for quite a while. So at the weekend, there were lots of vigils planned to remember Sarah Everard and other women lost to lost to violence, not just in Clapham Common, but around the United Kingdom. And the specific circumstances of the vigil on Clapham Common were that a group called Reclaim These Streets sort of organised an impromptu vigil That wasn't a group that had existed beforehand, but a lot of the individuals involved have quite a lot of experience with organising. Lots of them have links to the Labour Party, to campaigning in other ways. But they sort of formed this impromptu thing, arranged to hold a vigil at 6pm on Clapham Common, and then were basically informed by the police that they wouldn't be able to go ahead with that because it would breach coronavirus rules. And as Stephen has written, basically, thanks to them going to court, the court did confirm that there is a kind of provision um, to allow protests in the coronavirus laws, even though in this case, the Mets still didn't want the vigils to go ahead. But it basically means that it had been agreed that the the organisers called the, the vigil off, but plainly lots of people had already heard about the plans and 
wanted to go anyway, making the, I think, not unreasonable argument that it isn't police who decides, you know, who gets to protest and, and when and where. So there was huge turnout anyway at that event and all around the UK and all of the rest of them passed off, you know, without incident and took place the way everyone wanted them to. And then a clap and comment, I think everyone listening has already seen the really shocking footage of the people at the vigil I didn't call them protesters there because there's this whole separate debate about whether it was a protest or not that I, I don't think we need to get into. But that the people at the protest, many of them were arrested. They were sort of restrained by police. And it's quite difficult. The resonance of that in that context means that I think people are thinking quite differently or it's thrown into, shot, into stark relief. The powers that, that the police have around protests and the and the and the current circumstances, I suppose, because it isn't unusual for protests to be placed in that way, even though the other ones around the UK weren't. But, you know, people have been been citing examples from the Extinction Rebellion protests or Black Lives Matter protests earlier in the summer and and comparing them. But actually, you know, some there have been examples throughout the lockdown of some quite heavy-handed policing from the Metropolitan Police. But in this circumstance, I think seeing women being manhandled and restrained at night on Clapham Common by police officers, given who and what they were remembering, it's quite difficult to take. And I think also we're kind of, I suppose, we're skirting around the edges of the of the Sarah Everard case itself, A, for legal reasons, because there's a trial ongoing, and also because I think it's quite difficult to talk about and none of us especially want to today. But in general, I suppose this case has has a particular resonance because it has resonated differently, I suppose, because the person in question is white and young and middle class and very a very familiar kind of person to lots of people in the media and in politics. You know, the Duchess of Cambridge went to pay her respects at that vigil. Right before it started, she went and, and went to Clapham Common to pay her respects. It has a resonance, I suppose, beyond ordinary protests or events like that, because I suppose it, it is quite white and middle class. And I think there are lots of people who maybe wouldn't attend protests normally who can really imagine themselves there demonstrating peacefully, remembering remembering the victim of this tragedy, who are suddenly thinking, you know, oh, that could have been me, and I could have been restrained by the police. So in a way, it's sort of taking the most, in a sense, the most privileged example. I, I don't mean that disparagingly, but taking the most privileged example of a kind of protest and seeing that being placed in a heavy-handed way that I think has made this conversation particularly stark and has made people who maybe norm- normally wouldn't be so worried about heavy-handed policing of political protests much more worried about it because I think they can identify a bit more than they than they sometimes would. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this is that one of the kind of excuses, and you know, there is there is some leeway for this, is that the coronavirus laws are very bad, like they're badly written and they're very difficult to police. And we've discussed this in terms of, you know, various things like sitting on benches and having a coffee and whether that counts as a picnic and what counts as mingling and what doesn't. You know, there's all sorts of language that's very, very difficult to enforce because these laws were hastily written in a way that requires, you know, 101 different exemptions 
conditions. And we've spoken about that many times before. And in a sense, this this is another part of that in that it's difficult for an individual police force to make a call and enforce it and decide how far to enforce it when they're working off the back of these of these shoddily kind of written rules that that have demonstrated themselves time and again to be very very difficult to police Cressa Didic has you know has said that's been her sort of defense that it's very difficult for her officers but I think that there's that that doesn't really stand in this case and I, I kind of wish that that the sort of public discourse about lockdown had appreciated this more in that this this actually does stem from the sort of extinction rebellion days and before them doesn't it this legislation and it just follows a rich history of of the police and governments over time using public uprisings or protests or or demonstrations using them and their fallout to make harsher rules about the rights to to public assembly. I mean, there was this time in 2019 when Extinction Rebellion were doing their autumn uprising and and they were camping in Trafalgar Square. I don't know if you remember, and the, and the police issued something called a Section 14 order under the Public Order Act to just say there's no there's no right to assembly linked to to the Extinction Rebellion protest allowed in London. And you know, that was just it was just completely, you know, I mean, every <laughs> every lawyer that I interviewed when I was covering was just like, you know, this will be challenged from from left, right and centre because it's difficult to make something like stick. It's like that stick in terms of our human rights. But the concern was that if you start using these orders and you start using these high profile protests to try and call for, for tougher rules, then that's kind of the, the direction that these kind of things can, can go in. So like in the 90s, there was the famous illegal raves and there was no sort of the police felt that they couldn't prosecute illegal ravers. That's that's sort of what gave birth to the Public Order Act. And I worry that the difficulty of policing protests during lockdown, which, of course, there are different different aspects of public safety that you do have to balance. I worry that that is then feeding feeding into the argument that the police will always make, well, we want more powers. We want more powers to to be able to to control public assembly at any point, you know, whether in a pandemic or not. So I worry that this is just part of that pattern and that what happened at the vigil is almost being used as an excuse. You know, look, this shows how difficult it's been for us to interpret these laws. Let's have a whole new piece of legislation that makes it easier for us to to police protest. And I think that's quite a dangerous but a well-established pattern. So I don't really buy the coronavirus law excuse because I think that the, that the origins of this row, albeit less less heated and less visceral, are pre-pandemic. And so I think that um, it is a shame to see conservative politicians who have been locked down sceptics, <laughs> you know, not, not perhaps being, being hypocritical because lockdown scepticism has been a preserve of the right in terms of who has the loudest voices. But actually, there has have been very interesting arguments about the way that lockdown has been handled by left-wing human rights lawyers who, you know, many of their arguments do overlap with the arguments that are put forward by right-wing libertarians. But when it comes to voting on this legislation, talking about it, you can you can just see the temptation to be like, well, you know, anything that makes it more difficult for lefties to block roads is is fine by me. I find that quite disturbing and frustrating, but I also think that it, it exposes a, a, a lack of time and airtime and prominence given to the sort of left-wing lockdown scepticism. And I say scepticism in a way that doesn't mean, you know, crankish anti-science arguments, but interrogating what this means for our rights in the long term. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that 
it has been a little bit misinterpreted, or I think some people imagining what a quote-unquote left-wing approach to lockdown and protest would be, see contradictions and imagine a sort of a contradicted position where none exists, because actually, like in Stephen's coverage and the New Statesman's coverage of this, we have been quite consistent that the right to protest is a is a vital part of democracy. I think people think <laughs> that maybe that wasn't the left-wing approach because the left has broadly been more supportive of the need to lock down than the right. And I think that this is the view across the board that if the government is bringing in laws that massively curtail people's freedoms, that basically outlaw leaving your home at certain points beyond a, a small set of exceptions, then the right to protest those is is absolutely fundamental. I don't think anyone has really disputed that. And actually, throughout, I remember there was a debate a while back. I think it was when Parliament was sitting in person again. So after the first lockdown, when things had opened up a little bit, there was an anti-lockdown protest right outside Parliament. And at that point, MPs who, you know, certainly were not anti-lockdown, certainly weren't lockdown sceptics, were voicing their concerns in the chamber at how heavy-handed the policing was. And obviously, lockdown protests are a tricky one because if you're protesting against lockdown and those rules, you tend to be breaking other rules. So often those protesters have been arrested for other things like not wearing masks or not social distancing. But the, the fact of protesting in and of itself should never have been touchable by these laws, I think. And I think that's actually been, been a quite consistent position. been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too then why not subscribe to the new statesman you can get 12 weeks for 12 pounds go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, Ask Us. Us. We've had a number of different questions about the, the vigil and the political response to it. But we want to discuss in particular, how does Labour view the crisis in policing that we're seeing? Stephen, you wrote a piece about how recent Labour oppositions have mainly focused on the sort of underfunding of police. And you wrote about the problems with that. Is that what Keir Starmer's doing too? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... People often say that their favourite thing about the first uh, NS podcast is where they get the kind of like, well, it's a bit like this kind of very scatty sort of theorising of the next politics column. But I do think the underlying problem in British politics is that definitely over the last decade, with a sort of important and partial but partial exception of the kind of, you know, in parts of the Theresa May era at the Home Office, 
bridge politics has been conducted between a Labour opposition going, the thing the police need is more money, and a Conservative government going, the thing the police need is more power. I would like to make this very clear, this a specifically a critique of Labour nationally, and also some of the Metro mayors. Because I always think it's, it's, it's a fair criticism of both Sadiq Khan and Andy Burnham, which is particularly interesting, I think, in the case of Andy Burnham, who is, is someone who uh, you know, was instrumental in the Hillsborough Inquiry happening, who is someone who does have a sense of what bad policing looks like and a sense of what good policing would look like, which is then essentially if most of the thoughtful sort of energy around like what would you do differently with criminal justice and policing in the Labour Party at Westminster has been around people who are kind of sort of ACAB adjacent, sort of sympathetic to the idea of, of abolition, even if they themselves would not advance it for sort of electoral reasons. But there's this very little engagement in the kind of broad bit of, you know, the left to centre, left to centre, you know, kind of the kind of person who go, well, of course I'm not against, I mean, actually, as Keir Starmer says, well, of course I'm not against abolishing the police. We've been campaigning for more for years. But when you actually go like, okay, well, what has Labour's what would it like these police to do other than for them to be more of them and for them to be on the beat? The yeah, response to the vigil, I think, is a classic example. Right? There's been some pretty sensitive responses to it. There have been some pretty terrible responses to it here in London. And indeed, we've seen, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, for example, I think it was the correct decision, both in terms of lives, what we know about the very limited spread of coronavirus outside. I think it was sensible for the police to take a, let's not you know, be too heavy-handed and mob-handed approach to Rangers fans celebrating their title win because it's not going to cause a rise in cases and it's not something that was worth any of the difficulties. But there's very little engagement from the Labour leadership at any point over the decade about what it is good policing looks like. And I think you really see how that absence of any kind of sense or engagement right now. Obviously, Labour's had very different schools policies and, and higher education policies in that time, but they have had them, right? Whereas beyond just pressing the button marked more money, they haven't really got one. And I think that if they had had something, then they would have been able to have some kind of position beyond going, oh, dearie me, this doesn't look good, but this may also be our fault for voting for these laws. So... um <clears throat> I guess we'll just wait till the inquiry. And and this, I think, is the problem with having no engagement in, in policing as policy. The Labour Party's position for the last decade is basically policing as kind of symbol of, like, their, their toughness. It's interesting as well, I think, because I think because of the particular circumstances of Keir Starmer as a former director of public prosecutions, he loves to invoke that to remind people that he is implicitly tough on on law and order that you know he's tough on criminals whereas actually I know that it's something that he takes great pride in that he was involved I think as director of public prosecutions and not in a previous role but he was very much involved in the reform of the Northern Irish Police Service from the Royal Ulster Constabulary which was a sectarian organization and reforming it to to become the PSNI that we have today which is genuinely representative of both communities and you know compared with controversies around the Metropolitan Police or, or controversies everywhere I think that in general, there's there's widespread community support for the PSNI in Northern Ireland, which does a really difficult job. I said that on the podcast a year or two ago, and lots of people wrote in to agree, which, so I think I'm not wrong in saying that, even though it feels strange saying on a podcast that there is broad support for a police service doing a good job somewhere. But basically, Keir Starmer was very closely involved with the reform of the police service in Northern Ireland and takes a a long-standing and genuine interest in police reform. 
But as Stephen says, the Labour position for years, including under Jeremy Corbyn, has been to take a, a broadly uncritical line and to envelop discussion of the police and the police service in a broader conversation about public services and underfunding. So their response to cuts and crime is to note that police services were cut and to say that they would have more of them. And and we saw that with Keir Starmer's response to the Black Lives Matter protests in that he was asked if Labour wanted to abolish the police and, and he made it really clear that he thought it was a ridiculous idea. I mean, I, I don't know how sincere that is. I'm, I'm sure that actually, given his his long-standing interest in police reform, that if he had been asked that in a more considered setting where, rather than a, just a pop-up interview outside Parliament somewhere, I think he would have given a more considered answer because I'm, I'm fairly confident that he does have more considered views on this. And I think especially in the wake of these protests and vigils, which you know, have hit different in a way because of the kinds of people involved in part and the particular sensitivity around them and quite how badly they've been handled. I think we're kind of seeing some Labour politicians being a bit more true to themselves and their instincts on this, but it's tricky because Labour hasn't been making an argument like that for some time and it is an area where you can see voters are very, very divided. It's a classic example, like police reform and protests, whether Cressida Dick should resign. All these issues are, you know, they're like Carrie and Meghan from last week in that they are divided between Conservative and Labour and the biggest divide is is over age. So if you were to boil this down to a classic, you know, debate about whether sort of socially conservative voters in red wall seats will be convinced by Labour's position. This is an example where a lot of Labour MPs' instincts don't chime with more socially conservative voters. Yeah, I really, I think you're right about the fact that there could be a a more nuanced response to what vision of policing the Labour Party has, because like you say, there's no doubt that Keir Starmer has those ideas, you know, from working in the criminal justice system in England, you must have some ideas about how differently it should be run and and what kind of solutions are needed to to fix some of the problems. And I'd love to to see some of that from the Labour Party. I think there's 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 long been a fear, particularly from the Labour Party in opposition, that they are less likely to be seen as a party of law and order and security, which are often quite high in voters' priorities. You could tell that at the last election. Those pictures of Boris Johnson standing in front of all those policemen, the focus on on hiring more police officers, etc., showed that they they know that the Conservative Party knew that there were sort of votes to be won on that topic. And also, if you ever go go out sort of vox popping, that's often something that's mentioned. You know, we used to see have a lot more police around here. We used to see them on the beat. We don't anymore depending on what community you are vox popping in, of course. But it is very much a priority voter issue. So I think there's a squeamishness and there has long been a squeamishness, even during the sort of Jeremy Corbyn years, of suggesting that you're in any way not supportive of the police or you're not supportive of hiring more officers, for example. But I'd, I, I think what could be more helpful, particularly when something like this happens, is to have a more nuanced response and something that's more researched, you know, For example, the sort of public health policy response that they had in Scotland during the noughties to try and cut down on 
violent crime or knife crime among young people. I think Scotland was one of the most violent countries in in the developed world before before they changed their tack. And the police did have a role to play in 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 that in that way where um where knife crime was was approached as a public health issue rather than a criminal justice issue and the figures speak for themselves so it would be interesting if if labor had a sort of something more thoughtful to say along those lines you know about various social problems and and i think that 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 probably would would be they have to say oh x public service needs more money to to run effectively they have to say that about so many parts of society i mean perhaps it would be helpful for them to have something to say that's a bit different from that standard Labour line. And also, you know, what helps is that the evidence shows that it, it would actually be more effective as well if they did. So I just think that there's there's been a lack of thought, maybe just from a sort of default complacency about, you know, how you're supposed to talk about the police, you know, in order to sound attractive to voters. And I think that this has really exposed that. Yeah, just to jump in, I should have I should have checked this before I made my last point. But yeah, Keir Starmer was a human rights advisor to the police in Northern Ireland for five years. So his role on the policing board was to ensure that the new police service fully complied with its human rights obligations. And he's also, from looking it up, he's written lots of textbooks about the bounds of police powers and, and how they intersect with human rights. So I, you know, this is plainly a man with quite considered views on the intersection of human rights and and policing. And as you say, it just seems like Labour has failed to build an argument down the years for a more more complex or nuanced approach to policing, such that any Labour politician, Keir Starmer or anyone else, just gives a sort of, oh, we need more of them. And it's difficult now. The problem is, I suppose, you have to build a narrative over years for this kind of thing. It's so difficult at this stage to talk about overbearing policing if you haven't been talking or you haven't been highlighting your concerns six months or a year ago or, or, you know, two years ago. I think that that's the particular challenge. And it's sort of, I suppose, an example of Labour not being necessarily true to itself if all of these politicians have much more considered views on this than they give credit to. Do you agree with that, Stephen? So I kind of think the underlying problem they have is that their policing policy has always been an electoral strategy, right? And okay, obviously it worked very well in 2017, right? But it was a specific kind of, we think austerity is bad. There have been cuts to the police. The Prime Minister is responsible for them. So let's just keep repeating this, repeating this, repeating this and hoping that we can get some joy. And then they did get quite a lot of joy out of it, to be fair. But completely absent from it was any kind of sense of, well, okay, what does good policing look like, right? These extra police, right? Do you want them to be fighting cybercrime? Yeah. And obviously, we all of the evidence shows that, you know, minor, in inverted commas, uh, sexual offences tend to be the beginning of someone's criminal justice to more severe sections. So, so do you want them to be doing that? Do you want them to be tackling burglaries? Do you want them to be on the beat? Uh, if you want them to be on the beat and doing the P-like model of policing, you should probably spend more money on their housing because how can you have locally responsive policing when we don't pay police officers enough to live in large parts of, of London if they want the desirable standard of living? They've never had a sense of what good policing looks like. Obviously, before Jeremy Corbyn took over, it felt that as Shadow Home Secretary of Cooper could never work out if she wanted to be to Theresa May's left or to her right. And so she just kind of ended up sort of in this weird no man's land a lot of the time. And well, now we've ended up in a situation, right, where there's sort of big attack line of you need to increase the number of police officers. Well, that challenge has been met. 
I think we are going to see over the next five years, and we've seen this this week with this whole, uh, yeah, let's have more laws against sexual harassment. And I think we probably should have more laws. But first, we could maybe successfully enforce the laws on sexual harassment we already have, and we currently lack state capacity to do so. I think we are going to see the very hard limits of, of just spend more on the core force, as it were, as a device for fighting crime, as a device for making people feel safer. And so I think I think you're both right. Then they it's partly that they could have a more nuanced position about police misbehaviour. But actually, in order to have a position on misbehaviour, you need to have a position on good behaviour. And no one in the Labour Party has identified what it is they think good policing is. I mean, I specifically mean no one in the Labour Party at Westminster, because there are actually lots of people, both people who have been defeated police and crime commissioner candidates, some people who've been successful police and crime commissioner candidates, who have got these much more nuanced and interesting views about what it is they are aiming their local police forces to be good at. But I think if you don't have that sort of core you know, not necessarily, but you don't have a kind of core sense of what, what excellence looks like, then in the end you just end up in a kind of like numbers game where you go, you know, we want a thousand, and they go, well, we want a thousand, plus we want those thousands to be able to, you know, unilaterally decide with three people shouting a bit, it's a protest and is therefore illegal. And the failure to sort of get out of that zone has been not the only reason why Labour hasn't won an election since 2005, but I do think it is part of the reason why Labour hasn't won an election since 2005. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. You can find me on Twitter at pronounced Alva. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Stephen KB. If you want to ask us a question for the You Ask Us section, please submit one at youaskus.co.uk. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Disorder.